pray that you would give grace to that end and that you would enable me to preach your word faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. May be seated. Last week we began by looking at the purposes God had in trials that he brings into our lives. And I love the book of James. It is such a practical, down-to-earth, rubber-meets-the-road kind of a book. And uh, one author titled this book, uh, Faith in Work Clothes. And I think that's such an appropriate uh, title, Faith in Work Clothes. But anyway, last week, uh, we looked at seven steps for maintaining joy in the midst of our trials. And one of those steps was understanding that God's, uh, God always has good purposes when he allows trials into our lives. And uh, one of those purposes for trials is to develop wisdom in the believer. And so even though we can't be preaching all of this section together, this really is tied to the previous section. Uh, wisdom often comes out of the laboratory of affliction. Proverbs 29:15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom. He is saying, you guys know it yourselves. You artificially bring trials into the lives of your children to produce wisdom in them. And when you leave your child alone, he's not going to gain wisdom. He's going to gain the opposite. He's going to be gaining shame. And the parents will gain shame. And we want to make sure we're gaining wisdom through our trials. We're not bringing shame uh, to our Heavenly Father. A young businessman went to an executive one day and he asked him what was the secret to his success. And uh, the executive supposedly said, uh, wise decisions. And he said, yeah, I know, but uh, how do you make wise decisions? And he said, through experience. And he said, well, how do you get experience? And he said, through dumb decisions. <laughs> and uh, his point was, there's a lot you can learn from books, but there are some things you just, the only way you can learn it is through experience. And sometimes in those experiences, you're going to be making dumb decisions. So I do not want you to be discouraged if you've made a pile of dumb decisions in the past so long as you're learning from them, okay? Uh, so long as uh, they are causing you to grow in wisdom. The International Standard Bible Dictionary says of wisdom, predominantly the wisdom thought of is that which comes through experience and the wise man is at his best in old age. Job 12, verse 12, Job 15, verse 10, Proverbs 16, verse 31. Now, we're going to be seeing it doesn't automatically come through experience, okay? There's people who have had a ton of experience, and they're still not wise. They're still foolish. But experience is a part of the process, and we'll be looking at other factors that the Lord uh, uses, and especially when we get to uh, chapter 3. And I think it would be helpful if we define our terms. I've put into your outlines four words that frequently are used interchangeably as if they're synonyms. They are not synonyms. They have quite distinct meanings in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament as well as in the Greek of the New. And the first word is knowledge. Knowledge is basically the accumulation of facts and of information. So you're basically cranking open your head and you're pouring in information. That's knowledge, okay? People who are good at these trivia games, they've got all kinds of knowledge that they've stuffed into their heads, some from experience, some from reading, some from memorization. They don't necessarily have an understanding of that knowledge, but they do have a ton of facts that they have put into their head. Now, the next word, understanding, is uh, related to how those facts or those informations that you have put together, how that all interrelates. It's the meaning of those things. And so you're looking at the facts of Scripture and you develop systematic theology. That's an understanding of the facts. There's a lot of people that they've got tons of Scripture memorized. 
they don't have the foggiest notion how those scriptures relate to each other because they don't know systematic theology, no understanding. Understanding would be knowing how the facts of economics all relate together. You know, it's kind of a systematic uh, pulling of these facts together in a topical way. Then the next word goes beyond that. It is uh, wisdom. Uh, uh, wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge and understanding to the circumstances that we face in life in a way that pleases God. Now, let me give you an example. If you were to read a book on child rearing, the author of that book would be giving a pile of facts, biblical facts. That's the information going into your head is knowledge. But he has systematized those facts in such a way that it's helpful for parenting. That's understanding of how the facts of Scripture relate to a specific subject. And then wisdom is taking that knowledge and that understanding, and he'll give you some case book scenarios. Okay, this is what your child has done. Here is how you would apply this to that situation. You say, wow, that's cool. That's neat. And it's the wisdom aspect. Those are the things where the parents are pulling their hair out, right? And they're wondering, how in the world am I going to deal with these kids? And you say, Lord, give me wisdom. That's what we're talking about. We're taking the theoretical and we're saying, how, Lord, do I apply it to the specifics of life? So that's um, the practical rubber meets the road uh, type of issue. And James chapter 3 says that such wisdom comes from above. It's supernatural. It cannot be manufactured. Now, he talks about a wisdom that can be manufactured. It's the wisdom that comes from below. Uh, but this is a wisdom that the Holy Spirit himself gives. Okay, fourth word is prudence, and it's the willingness to do the wise thing at any given moment. And there are a lot of people who do have wisdom. They know exactly what they need to do, but they don't have the prudence to carry through on, on, on that problem. The sinful emotions and desires get in the way, and that was what was wrong with Solomon. Solomon had wisdom. He did not have the prudence. He was drawn away by his fleshly desires or convenience or whatever it may be. He was drawn away to deliberately sin against wisdom. He knew what was right to do, and he didn't do it anyway. Okay, so prudence is, is carrying it one step uh, further. Now, on the back of, your, uh, back of your worship notes, I've got uh, a couple of quotes uh, related to wisdom. I didn't have a lot of time to pull together some stuff. But I like the one by Spurgeon. Now, that's the second one down. He's, we are called on to select a man who, as to his life as a whole, perpetrated the greatest folly. In other words, exhibited the most foolishness in his life. He says, we should mention Solomon. Yet, he was the wisest of men. Yes, the cream of wisdom, when curdled, makes the worst of folly. And let me tell you something. If you do not have prudence... It will curdle. It will sour any wisdom that God has given to you. So these really are all tightly held together. We need all four in, in our lives. And so I thought that was a, a helpful quote that, uh, that you would want to keep in the back of your mind. So those are the four terms. And I've given also uh, some definitions. I'm only going to read one of them. I like John Blanchard's the best. He says, wisdom is the God-given insight. And that word insight is really key there the God-given insight into our human circumstances and situations that enables man to see God's will. And I think that nails it. Now, here's the coolest point. Point number two says, who qualifies to get this wisdom? You might think, 
hey, I'm not brilliant. It's only the brilliant people who are going to be able to have, uh, you know, this kind of wisdom. I'm no Solomon. I'm no David. Maybe I'm uh, just consigned to foolishness all my life. Well, James absolutely disagrees. He says any Christian ought to be able to have this wisdom. Any Christian ought to be able to have it. It does not depend upon IQ. Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and it will be given to him. And so, brothers and sisters, uh, if you've been frustrated over decision-making and things like that, take heart. Uh, Take heart that it does not depend upon a high IQ, a great intelligence to be able to have this wisdom. You might say, well, there's no way I have the wisdom of Solomon. Well, you don't need the wisdom of Solomon because you are not a king over Israel. You don't have his responsibilities. But for any responsibilities that God has placed you in, God guarantees you can have access to all of the wisdom you need to be able to make your decisions wisely. Okay? Uh, He says it's for anyone. And uh, I have met many um, uh, brilliant Christians who really are foolish when it comes to practical Christian living. And actually, some of you have probably noticed this in life, that you know, there are bright people out there that don't know which end of the hammer to use. Uh, they just don't have any practical living skills, uh, and yet they've got a high IQ. We should not equate, you know, high IQ with wisdom. They really are distinct. Uh, issues. And on the other hand, I have known of retarded Christians who knew they didn't have what it takes to be able to make a decision, you know, in a, a situation that they were facing. And they cry out to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I know that you will give me wisdom. And it's just been remarkable to see the wisdom that they have, that they have exhibited. In fact, we just recently uh, finished um, in our story time at home a, uh, a book that, well, it's this book right here, that's about a... Uh, Protestant minister in Holland during the Inquisition, Roman Catholic Inquisition, and they had hunted him down and they had captured him on the day that uh, his son was dying, and a really a difficult uh, situation he was in. He's, he was sent to the Holy Cross Towers, an incredibly secure fortress where uh, they would torture prisoners to try to extract information. Well, first of all, they were trying to get him to recant and come back into the Roman Catholic Church, but then they were trying to extract information from these people so that they could catch other Protestants, and once they got the information, then they would, they would uh, kill the person. Well, this one retarded man felt uh, led by the Lord to go to this prison, travel to that p- prison, and get the minister his Bible and get the minister out. And uh, uh, interestingly, everybody thought this is crazy. You know, what are you, what are you thinking, Bouquet? Bouquet was his name. And uh, he also felt prompted by the Lord to cut a lock of hair off of the dead son's uh, head and take it to uh, Harm Hidez, the minister. And that lock of hair proves to be very critical to the story, and it's un- unwinding. Uh, this is just a, a neat, uh, neat message. But anyway... Most people just take him as the village idiot, okay? And they're talking him out of this. Go there, you know. You you can't get into that fortress. Nobody can get into that fortress. And if you could, what's the point? You know, you're just going to get tortured and killed too, just like everybody else is. And he says, no, I'm going. I I believe that I need to bring a message of encouragement to this minister, get him his Bible, and get him this lock of hair. And so they say, okay, you know, they just couldn't convince him. And... Uh, they, one guy took him, led him, you know, close to where it was, pointed it out and hightailed it back. And he goes up to the 
he goes up to the prison, and, you know, forgive me for reading at length, but I just think this is such a great illustration of uh, what we are talking about here. He doesn't really know what to do. There stood Buke in front of the monstrous stone structure. On the way, he had wondered a thousand times how he would ever be able to enter it. Still, he had not figured out a way. There he stood in the afternoon in front of the guardhouse in which a few soldiers sat around, undecided and hesitant. He looked around. Finally, he wondered if he would ever get inside. Lord, Buke whispered, thou knowest that I have a message for thy servant who is sighing in there in bondage for thy name's sake. Wilt thou help me now to carry out my task? Suddenly, Buke got an idea when he saw the pewter mugs standing on the table in the guardhouse. Boldly, he walked into the room, sat down on the wooden bench, put his stick and bundle on the table, and picking up an empty beer mug, pounded it on the table as if he were in a tavern. The three soldiers first looked at each other, and then at Buke, and at last they burst out laughing. Well, your lordship, what is it you desire? One of them asked mockingly, turning to Buke. A pint of good beer and a place to sleep, Buke replied. And with his one eye, he looked so stupidly at the man that the latter really thought he was dealing with somebody who was not in his right mind. But where is the Castellan? Buke asked, looking around. We shall get him for you in a minute, the soldier replied, and turning to his friends, he said, let's play a joke on him. In the days of our story, the man in charge of a castle or fortress was called a Castellan, but so was an innkeeper, and so the man in charge of the Holy Cross Tower could be addressed by that name as well. The soldier rang the big bell on the door through which Harm Hedez had entered, and that was the minister who had been imprisoned, and whispered something in the guard's ear. The latter left, laughing, and soon returned with the jailer. Here is the Castellan, one of the soldiers snapped at Buke. What do you want? The jailer asked in surprise, turning to Buke. The farmhand looked from the jailer to the laughing soldiers like someone who had just discovered that he had made a mistake. Oh, excuse me, sir, Buke said bashfully and bared his head, nervously fumbling with the hat in his hands. I thought that this was an inn when I saw these mugs on the table and the doors open, and that's why I asked for the Castellan but I can tell you are no innkeeper. What's the meaning of this misplaced joke? The jailer asked, annoyed, turning to the guard and the soldiers. Do you know, little peasant, where you are? Do you know what kind of an inn this is? Buka shrugged his shoulders. This place is an inn where it's best never to enter as a guest because the chances of ever getting out again are little indeed. This is the tower in which heretics and similar criminals are locked up. Startled, Buka reached for his stick and bundle as if to leave in a hurry. Take it easy, the jailer said, now also laughing on account of Buke's hasty and awkward movements. You don't have to run off like that. Tell me, where do you come from and what are you doing here in town? I used to live with a farmer near Leiden, Buke answered, and I have been told that here in Amsterdam I can find work and that the pay is good. And where do you think you will find work? That I don't know, Buke said. Have you ever seen such a dumb goose in your life, the jailer cried. Then he was quiet as if he were thinking about something. Are you strong? He asked Buka after a while. The farmhand smiled, which made his face even uglier instead of more attractive. He then picked up one of the pewter mugs and crushed it in one hand as if it were paper. I don't mean that way, the jailer cried. Anyway, I see, fellow, that you have a couple of strong hands on your body, and I can use someone like that. Do you want to come into my service? Buka act acted as if the idea to work in a jail horrified him. To the jailer, this was all the more reason to urge him to stay, and the reader can well imagine that Buka needed little coaxing. From that moment on, Hannes's servant, that's the minister's servant, ate in the company of the prison guards and slept in a small room above the entrance of the building, and he did the heavy work for them. Well, Buka, even though he lost his life in the process, 
uh, caused, I don't think they're probably the only people ever escaped from that place, caused the minister and uh, his son, who he didn't even know, he thought had died, but actually the Roman Catholics had captured him, enabled them to escape. But that's what I'm talking about. Here is a person, didn't have a high IQ, but he just had a simple faith, and he said, Lord, I need wisdom. And any one of us, he says, you are qualified for the wisdom he's talking about if you lack it. Don't think you have to have a high IQ, you have to be wise in order to ask for wisdom. No, God delights in giving it specifically to those who do not have that wisdom. Okay. Um, point three, I think, is also a cool point. It asks the question, how do you get it? You know, frequently we just scramble for resources, you know, when we don't know what to do. You know, we go to the, the wife or to the husband, we go to the pastor, we, we go here and there and we're wondering, oh, I've got to find an answer. Well, if you ever stop to think, you can just ask God for wisdom. You know, that's too simple, isn't it? We've we got to try something that's a little bit more difficult. But in verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Chapter 3, verse 17 says, The wisdom we're talking about here is from above. And if you don't ask, you won't have it. Now, I've put in your outline five ways in which we can ask for this wisdom. First of all, admit to your need for wisdom. Uh, we don't like people thinking poorly of us. And so rather than just saying, oh, I don't have the foggiest notion what to do, let's stop and let's pray that God would give us wisdom. We buffalo our way through, you know, and try to pretend like we know something that uh, we do not know. But we need the humility to ask. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. You get that? With humility comes wisdom. Wisdom comes to those who are humble enough to say, I don't know, <laughs> I need help, okay? And God is honored when we do that. In fact, that's what Solomon did. He cried out to the Lord and says, I'm just a child, Lord. I don't know how to rule this nation. I need your wisdom. And God delights in giving it to those who are humble. Second step is to long for wisdom. And the word that's used by James in verse 5 is not the ordinary word for ask. It's a word that uh, means to desire something, to crave something, or to long for something. It's that idea of longing for it. And again, there is nothing that the Lord appreciates more than a person who longs to be more wise, or more specifically, who longs to do the right thing that will please the Lord in any given situation. You know, Solomon wanted wisdom more than he wanted wealth or power, you know, or prestige, and God gave them all. And uh, so uh, longing for uh, wisdom is another step. Third is to ask. Now, later, James is going to rebuke the congregation and say, hey, you have not because you ask not. Uh, it doesn't need to be a long, drawn-out prayer, but it does need to be a prayer. Lord, I want to do the right thing. Give me wisdom. Fourth step may not be immediately obvious. It says that we need to gain more knowledge and understanding by reading the Bible. Now, the reason I say that this is really implied into the text is because of two things that you find in the text. It's not obvious on the surface, but the definition of the word wisdom is the application of knowledge and understanding to the concrete of life. Well, that means if you don't have knowledge and understanding, you won't be able to have the wisdom either. It doesn't come out of the blue. God does it through the Scriptures. There are a lot of people that are extremely unstable. We'll look at them uh, a little bit later. Very unstable because they don't want the objective. All they want is the subjective. Well, illumination of the Lord comes as mediated through the Scriptures. So, 
we do need to gain some knowledge, and even Buki, you know, he was somebody that read the, well, had the scriptures read to him, and he had learned, he had memorized a lot of the Psalms through singing. Uh, sometimes, uh, young, young children and uh, retarded people, even though they're not able to master a lot of things by way of memorization, when it comes to Psalms that are sung, they can grasp it for some reason. Maybe it's the music that's coupled with it. But um, uh, uh, that's, that's the first thing that implies it. And the second thing that implies this point is that how do we know anything about what James was talking about in wisdom? It's by reading James. James is scripture. Okay, so again, the scripture is needed if we're going to grow in this area. Then the fifth step is to anticipate the gift of wisdom. And that is an act of faith. You're anticipating God's going to give it. Okay? By faith, you're anticipating. Two ways I've listed in your outline that you can anticipate this. First one is as soon as you have asked for that wisdom, for the specifics of, of your situation, that you can just say, and thank you, Lord, thank you so much that you will give it, because I know that you're a God who's promised, you're a God who cannot lie, and I just thank you in advance for this wisdom that you're going to give. In fact, I'm going to now make my decision with joyfulness for your provision. So that's the first way you can anticipate it. The second way is um, to then immediately act in faith. See, God does not make your decisions for you. God gives you the wisdom so that you can make the decision. And I think this is an important point because some people are so indecisive, they just wait and wait and wait until the decision by de facto is made by, you know, no longer is the opportunity available there. And uh, the, this is the step of prudence. Frequently, you know, what we think is a lack of wisdom is not a lack of wisdom, it's a lack of prudence. We already know what the right decision is. We just don't like it. And we're trying to hope, hopefully people will give us a rational reason why we don't have to do it, right? Or, or we don't want to take the heat for that decision. But let me tell you, if you keep waiting and waiting and waiting to make a decision, it is not an act of faith. In fact, if people ran their businesses that way, the businesses would fold pretty quickly because a lot of times you're having to make decisions on the fly, you know, in a minute's notice. And you throw up a quick prayer, Lord, help me to make this decision to the best of my ability. And so people do need to be decisive. They need to say, okay, Lord, based on the fact you have promised wisdom, I thank you that you will give it. And now... With the best information that I have before me, I'm going to make this decision and know that you're going to work through it. I think we need to do that. Those both are acts of faith. And Hebrews 11 makes it clear. If you don't have action, you don't have faith. Every example of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is a, either an act of obedience or it's a decision of obedience. Every single example. And in James, um, he... He talks about, uh, let's see, James 1, verse 27. He says, where there is no action, there is no faith. Without action, there is no prudence. So we anticipate it by thanking him, making, exercising prudent decisions. Now, the thought might come to people, okay, well, I've, I, you know, I've, I've tried this before and the Lord has let me down. Um, I, I just don't know that I can trust the Lord. I've made so many mistakes in the past, I just freak out when it comes to decision making because it seems like every time I make a decision I've made it bad and so you're interpreting the present circumstances based on all of the failures you've had in the past and you feel kind of paralyzed. Well let me assure you that any failures that are there are because of one of the factors in verses 6 through 8. We'll get to that in a moment but first of all I want to encourage you God does not hold out on you. He is not going to let you down. James emphasizes five ways that God delights to come through. 
He says, let him ask of God. Now, here's the first assurance. Who gives? Who gives? Our God is a giving God. He says, every good thing you've ever experienced in life has come down from above. It's come from the Father of lights. Uh, so he is a giving God. Second, he is a God who doesn't play favoritism. It says, who gives to all. You might think you're the exception. Well, that would make him a liar here. Okay? He says he gives to all. There's no favoritism. Thirdly, he's a generous God who gives to all liberally. Now, the Greek word there is literally sincerely, straightforwardly, or openly. In other words, no strings attached. You know the kind of strings that people put. Yeah, I'll do this for you if down the road you do this for me. God doesn't play that kind of a game. He says, no, I give you... Uh, sincerely, openly, no, no, no problems there. And that's why they translate it liberally or generously. Our God is a generous God. And then fourthly, he's a gracious God. He says he will do it without reproach. In other words, God's not going to chew you out for bothering him, pestering him. No, he's a gracious God. Don't worry about it. Go to him. He'll give it to you. No problems. And then finally, he's a God who does what he promises and it will be given to him. Now, those five assurances, don't stir up faith within you to ask for wisdom. I don't know what would. Those are designed to encourage us, go out, do the asking, take God for his word, and he'll come through. He'll give you all of the wisdom that you need. Now, the f point five, the fifth question there is, is there a condition? And there is. The condition is we must honor God with our faith. The next word says, but let him ask in faith. God is not honored when we doubt his willingness or we doubt his ability or we doubt his generosity or in any other way, we ascribe an imperfection or a defect to God. And let me tell you, lack of faith is always thinking poorly of God's character. It is always ascribing a defect to God, such as God is a liar, and I don't know that I can trust him to come through, or God doesn't know enough, or God makes mistakes, or something like that. Lack of faith is always ascribing a defect to God, thinking poorly of God. Now, is God going to honor you? It's no wonder that Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He doesn't say that faith is an option, you know, it's, it's good if you have it. If you don't, don't worry. No, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, the bottom line is, and this is point number six, that if you lack any wisdom in this coming week, it's because you have refused the wisdom. It's not because God is not willing and able to give you the wisdom. It's because you have refused the wisdom. And I've put into your outline a number of different ways in which we tend to refuse wisdom, just backing up a little bit. In the outline, we are refusing wisdom if we deny that we need it. You know, pride doesn't like to admit that we're weak, doesn't like to admit that we have needs. And so what we do in our relationships with each other is we boast about how much we know and what we can do. And then we quickly go, Lord, please come through for me, you know, because I've just promised something I can't deliver on. And we need to ask the question, if we are boasting before others of something we do not have, why should God give us something we say we don't need? Okay, that's a refusal of wisdom. God says, if you're, if you're so proud as to boast of something and not admit your lack, why in the world should I come through? You say you don't need it, I'm going to take you at your word. It's a refusal of wisdom. 
Pride is, a, is an awful thing. The second way we refuse wisdom is by failing to pray for it. So James's strategy is not when all else fails, pray. He says the first thing you need to be doing is quickly offering up a prayer to the Lord for wisdom as to what you ought to do. Like Nehemiah, you know, he's got this ejaculatory prayer silently in his head. He's talking to this guy and says, Lord, help me. <laughs> and the Lord comes through and he gives him just the right words to talk to him. And so every single day, we need to be asking the Lord in the situations we go through, Father, help me to have the right words that are going to break through. Help me to have wisdom here. Um, it just boggles my mind, you know, how easily we Christians tend to fall back into our own resources and totally forget to ask God. We've got a source of wisdom that's there for the asking, but we refuse if we fail to pray. Uh, thirdly, we refuse wisdom when we insult God in any of the ways mentioned in point C by thinking that God is a taker rather than a giver, thinking he's biased against us, he's playing favorites, when we think he's holding out on us, that he's ungracious, you know, that he's unreliable. And you can see why that would be dishonoring to the Lord. But the last way in which we refuse wisdom from his hand is by doubting. We're going to end with this one. James says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He describes doubt as being double-minded, two-minded. And I think that's, that's something we can relate to. We've all seen people who are double-minded, you know, in the way in which they act. I'm not going to point a finger out there. I'll just use myself as, uh, as an example. Anybody who knows me very well, has been around me for very, very uh, long, uh, knows that uh, I'm a little bit uh, directionally challenged, you know, when I'm driving. I tend to get lost easily, and part of the reason for that is because I don't see in pictures. I'm more of a philosopher, okay? And so I think in concepts, you give me a map, you know, details, okay, no problem. You describe something to me, you know, so many things past that tower, and it's like, okay, repeat that again. Uh, it's just, it's really hard for me. So what I do is I have Kathy as my navigator, no problems. Uh, but on this particular trip, Kathy's not along, and I'm lost as usual, and I'm out in the country, but no problems. I speak the language. You know, I drive into the service station. There's a nice old gentleman there, and I ask him, you know, how to get to the place I'm going to. He's really helpful. He says, no problems. All you have to do is uh, keep driving on this road till you see the water tower. The very next road, take a left. First right, you take a right, and then it'll be the second driveway on the left. Wow, easy. Now all of a sudden, you know, the stress has gone out of my life because I was worried I was going to be late. I'm not going to be late now, it looks like. And uh, so I get back into the car after I've thanked him and I start driving and uh, whistling a little tune. And I've gone three miles and there's no water tower. Uh, five miles later, I'm beginning to be a little double-minded. I'm wondering, did I, did I really get these directions right because I, I got the impression it was going to be a lot sooner than it's uh, turning out to be. And, of course, by this time, I'm chewing myself out for not asking how many miles it was to the water tower. Well, 15 minutes later, I'm really beginning to be double-minded. Do I turn back? Did I miss something? Uh, what's going on? I thought it was right around the corner. But... If I turn back, that's 15 minutes back, and then 15 minutes, four, I'll be 45 minutes late. 
Maybe it's just another mile or two. So I keep driving, and I tell you, my angst is increasing all the time because I forgot my cell phone, as I'm also known to sometimes do. And um, I'm driving along, but there's another service station. So I quickly dive in there, and I ask the guy, you know, said, back there, he gave me these directions. Oh, yeah, you can trust his directions, no problem. There's no water tower back there anyway. It's one mile ahead. Ah, good. So now I know I'm only going to be seven minutes late because by this time I'm already five minutes late. So I get back into the car and I have no anxieties. I'm certain everything's going to turn out okay. Why? Because now I know that the information is absolutely true. It's trustworthy. Well, God wants us to know His information that He's given to us in the Scriptures is absolutely trustworthy. We don't need to be double-minded, but what frequently happens with us is we are pitting God's wisdom against our wisdom. And the reason I was having difficulty is not because His advice in the car uh, to me for driving was bad. It's because His advice did not meet up with my expectations, right? That's what made me double-minded. What are my expectations in this parable? It's our wisdom. And so we're pitting God's wisdom against our wisdom and we're flopping back and forth, back and forth. Do I go forward? Do I go back? Uh, you know, how late am I willing to be? I mean, that's the kind of thing that, uh, that we are talking about here. And so he says, when you have those kinds of doubts, God's not going to give it because you are trusting in part his wisdom and in part your own wisdom. And what he says, you need to abandon yourself unreservedly to the wisdom of God. Does that make sense? That's what being double-minded is. Now, I've added one final thought here, and that is that it not only fails to get wisdom from God, but in the process it proves to be toxic to us. And it's toxic to us for a number of reasons. The first is that it makes us fear, makes us anxious. Fear and anxiety, you know, it, it does bad things to you over a period of time. And if you're constantly unstable in this way, it's adding unneeded stress. Now, in contrast, God's wisdom gives a sense of security. When you have a total, absolute trust in God's word, no sweat. You keep driving until you get to that spiritual water tower. It doesn't matter how long it takes. doesn't matter how many adversities there are. You know God's not going to let you down. You are not double-minded. You just keep going. He said it was going to be there on the right, and it's going to be there on the right. You keep going. And I think, of, uh, you know, the scripture talks about the righteous being bold of a lion. I think of Buki walking into that tavern, you know, thumping that pewter mug, you know. Uh, I have a great illustration. The second reason doubt is toxic is it makes us unstable. And what an incredible image of instability that he gives. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. If you've ever been out on the ocean in a storm, which I was, unfortunately, one time, just about lost my life on it, it's, it really is that way. You know, one minute the waves are pounding you on this side, the next minute, you know, they're coming at the other side. You don't know whether they're coming or going. And he says that a person who doubts is just as unstable in his life as those waters are unstable. And you're, it makes you unstable in your relationships. It makes you unstable in every other area of life as well. But we're going to reserve some of the thinking on that to um, James chapter 3. Doubt is also toxic because it keeps us from the miraculous. You see, where, where faith stands upon the Scripture and it receives from the Lord the supernatural insight, the illumination that we need to be able to apply something that's given illustrations in the Scripture, but the Scripture hasn't talked about Joey fighting with Sylvester, you know, that I'm pulling my hair out and don't know what to do. It's applied to new situations of life, and we need 
we need revelation. We need illumination from on high. Not revelation in terms of inscripturated or inspired revelation, but illumination uh, that we need from the Lord. And here is the problem. If you're vacillating between God's revelation, the scripture, and uh, your own wisdom, you're never going to be expecting the supernatural in your life because man's wisdom only expects the possible. God's wisdom always expects the impossible. I mean, it says, with God, nothing is impossible. You see the difference there? So uh, it's toxic in that it totally makes us live beneath the level of Christian living that we're supposed to be living. But the greatest reason that uh, doubt is toxic is because it fails to please God. Hebrews 11 again says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So there you have it. Here is James's encouragement to ask uh, for faith. And I hope that this passage has encouraged you. Dig a little into the scripture, you know, to gain more knowledge, gain understanding. And also go to the throne of God and say, Lord, I need wisdom for how to apply this knowledge and this understanding to the specifics of the details that I am uh, working through uh, today. Um, rather than refusing wisdom, ask for wisdom many times a day. I don't know how many times a day I have to ask the Lord uh, for wisdom. He's going to have a lot more to say about wisdom later, but for, uh, for this section, uh, I just hope it encourages you to realize it doesn't matter where you are in life. Every one of you can ask with the absolute confidence God will give. Don't second-guess him and say, oh, you know, I, do I really go out and do this? No, just say, Lord, you, you're a God who cannot lie, and I'm going to believe you. So let's pray. Father God, I, I bless you, I bless you, I bless you so much for the wisdom that you have given down through the years. Uh, Father, I wouldn't dare to want to even preach a sermon uh, without asking for your, your wisdom, to be able to apply it in ways that would, would help our people. I wouldn't dare want to uh, uh, guide my family, instruct and disciple my children without your wisdom. And I pray, Father, that each person here would gain such a confidence because they see you coming through day after day after day and giving the wisdom that is needed, that they would never doubt. They would never be double-minded, tossed to and fro. I pray each one here would enter into the kind of wisdom that Buke experienced, that the more intelligent minister experienced. Uh, Father, that each one of us would find the joy of walking with the illumination that you give for our day-by-day -day life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.